Welcome to Rocktail Hour, an hour's worth of rock and good time in about 15 minutes with your buddies Dave, Treg, and Brent. Three old guys that are a testament to the fact that rock and roll keeps you young. Some of us younger than others, by the way, Brent. <laughs> Just kidding. I hate you. <laughs> in each Rocktail Hour, we bring you our favorite stories behind the greatest rock and roll tunes of all time and other interesting musings about the music and the rockers who inspire us. Rocktail Hour is an affiliate of Amazon.com. When you shop on Amazon, it would be cool if you would first click on the Amazon.com link on the Rocktail Hour homepage or affiliates page, and Amazon will kick a few bucks back to Rocktail Hour to help fund the free podcast. One Amazon product that Rocktail Hour listeners might enjoy is Treg's legal thriller called Until Murder Do Us Part, and I will testify to that. I had a long flight to Austin, Texas from Southern California, and I read the book from cover to cover. Loved it. I got in about 3 o'clock in the morning, and I had to uh, stay up until 4 to read the conclusion. It was a great read. Great, great thriller by Treg. Today, Thanks, today, Treg is going to bring us the story behind Cream's Sunshine of Your Love. Treg, take it away. Yeah, thanks, Brent. I appreciate that. So Sunshine of Your Love is uh, one of my favorite songs of all time. It's got the great bass line to it that's just incredible. It's from uh, Cream's 1967 album called Disraeli Gears. The song reached number five on the Billboard Hot 100. It was number 65 on the Rolling Stone 500, mm -hmm. uh, greatest songs of all time. Q Magazine placed Sunshine of Your Love at number 19 on the list of the 100 greatest guitar tracks. And I would concur with all those. Great, great song. Well, let's talk a little bit about the band first. Cream was the very first rock supergroup. You had Eric Clapton, who was everybody in, at the time in England rated him as probably the top guitarist at the time. Clapton is God. That's, That's right. what was being spray painted <laughs> on the walls in England. In exactly. And and this was this group was formed at the height of that Clapton is God mania. Clapton had been in the Yardbirds as well as John Mayall's Blues Breakers. Jack Bruce, who was the bass player, he was in Manfred Mann and had previously been in the Graham Bond organization with Ginger Baker, who was the other member of Cream. And incidentally, I, th I think I chose this song because uh, Jack Bruce recently passed away yep. as of the recording of this. And uh, boy, what a loss of a, a great talent. What a major, major talent that guy was. Mm -hmm. What happened is uh, Jack Bruce was fed up with the group that he was playing in the Graham Bond organization, and he had seen Clapton play and, and invited him to play in a band with him. He was forming a new band, and, and he said, uh, you know, that's great as long as we bring Ginger Baker along. And Jack Bruce paused for a second because they were famous for hating each other and fighting with each other. It's not good when the rhythm section hates each other. <laughs> yeah, the bass player right. and the drummer need to get along. <laughs> but they did. In fact, there was one incident that I heard about where uh, on stage, Ginger Baker threw a drumstick at Jack Bruce, and Jack Bruce took his guitar and smashed up uh, Ginger Baker's drum kit. So that's how bad they hated each other. There's a great documentary I saw, and I, and I can't remember the name, but look for it. It was on HBO talking about Ginger Baker and how detested he was. Basically, every band he was in disintegrated because he was such a tool to work with. <laughs> An incredible talent. He was like a jazz drummer who played rock and was spectacular talent-wise, I can see him meshing with an Eric Clapton's persona. But no, not Jack Bruce. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, by, and, and not to get off topic too much, but by the 1970s, Ginger Baker was in Colorado playing for like a very, very low-level jazz combo because that was the only group that would take him. He was just – and when this documentary was done just a year or two ago, he was down in South Africa. He would kind of retired from the music business and was with a wife down there. He just kind of left it. 
again, wow. because he was so difficult to work with. Now, he was difficult because he thought he was better being a jazz guy than the rock guys? He was a perfectionist, or do you know? Like just what? He was prickly persona, personality. He just mm. rubbed people, people the wrong way. He just was a tool. <laughs> <He's> just, <laughs> you know, you've been in bands with people that just, they, they're not happy unless they're unhappy. And he was very grouchy and, and just right, would tell you how right. he felt. And if you messed up, he would tell you how awful you were, that kind of person. Yeah. I'm sure that helped to bring the band down, too, you know, after only a couple of years of playing together. Yep. Because they were just, they just couldn't get along. And, and and Clapton was frequently in the middle, you know, resolving the fights between the uh, the other two guys. Mm-hmm. But very interesting. Um, you know, what's interesting is uh, Jack Bruce also had a bit of a jazz background. And so Clapton has said that he was coming off of playing blues in the Yardbirds and in the uh, John Mayall's group. Mm-hmm. And and he said that because I, he was playing with these two guys who had a jazz background, that it forced him to learn how to improvise. And he said if he hadn't, that he would have just gone on imitating uh, the blues greats like he'd done you know, for his entire career up until that point. It's an interesting mix when you think about it. Jazz tends to be very frenetic and, and a lot of things going on. And, and obviously freeform, like you said, and, and blues tends to be slower and taking your time and pacing to get to the point. So to mesh yeah. those two, that's kind of kind of extreme on the spectrum. Yeah. So w- what happened is their sound became characterized as a hybrid of blues rock, hard rock, and psychedelic rock, mm-hmm. and not even a, much of a hint of jazz, I don't think. I mean, it, re- it really seems like they were a good blues rock, psychedelic rock band. Except when they covered Autumn Leaves. <laughs> Just kidding, they never did that. <laughs> he had me going. Clapton insisted that they be called cream because they considered themselves to be the cream of the crop. And that's of the course. truth. <laughs> of course. A little arrogant there. Well, you know what, though? I don't have a, as much of a problem with arrogance when you got the goods to back it up. Yeah. It's yeah. the unfounded arrogance that drives me nuts. And, I mean, you got Clapton, Jack Bruce, and Ginger Baker. They are. They were the cream. Yeah, that the dad, no doubt about it. And and the greatness lingers. I mean, there's still it, it yep. stands the test of time. It is still great, great music. Another interesting thing that characterized Cream is that they played very loud. Uh, this is at the time when they started to play in 19, 1966, I think, around that time, was when the Marshall amplifiers were invented. And mm. Jimi Hendrix was famous for using them, and the Cream was famous for using them too. And they would stack these Marshall amps and play at deafening levels. I think Ginger Baker said that he still had hearing problems many years after that because of the volume level that they would play at. Those guys are all, uh, you know, at least like 60 to 75% deaf in one ear or the other today, yeah. Clapton included. Yeah, yeah. They have destroyed their hearing over Not the surprising. Years. Not surprising. Yeah. Well, one, one, one funny anecdote, Ginger Baker said that one time when they were playing, uh, it was so loud that he just stopped playing and then Clapton stopped playing. And Jack Bruce just kept playing because he couldn't tell <laughs> that the other guys had stopped because <laughs> he was so loud. You know, he was playing his bass line at such a loud volume. He didn't know. He couldn't hear the other guys when they stopped. Unintended <laughs> solo then. Yeah. Take they, it away, Jack. They all went to 11. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Spinal Tap reference there. Yeah. So in the Disraeli Gears album, the group departed from their blues roots and indulged in more psychedelic sounds. Uh, I think Strange Brew in particular has that uh, real psychedelic sound mm-hmm. to it. Uh, another interesting fact about the Disraeli Gears album is that it was recorded in just three days because the band had to return to England because their work visas were expiring, hmm. which I thought was kind of funny. 
the naming of the album is also kind of interesting. Eric Clapton was thinking about buying a racing bike, and he was discussing it with Ginger Baker when a roadie named Mick Turner commented, it's got them Disraeli gears. But he was meaning to say derailer gears, <laughs> but <laughs> instead he alluded to the 19th century British Prime Minister Benjamin Disraeli. Yeah. <laughs> and, and the band just laughed about it. They thought it was so funny that they decided that that would stick and that would be the name of their next album. And I thought they had like this really savvy historical political insight, and that's why they called it Disraeli <laughs> gears. No. It's just goofy. It's just know? some dumb roadie. Exactly. I love it. <laughs> yeah. So let's talk about the song. Uh, this song has one of the best bass lines ever written. It's just brilliant, and it's just infectious. Jack Bruce says that it was inspired by Jimi Hendrix. Hmm. Eric Clapton elaborated on, on this in a 1988 Rolling Stone magazine interview. He said that Hendrix played this gig that was blinding. I don't think that Jack Bruce had really taken him in before, and when he did see it that night, after the big gig, he went home, and he came up with the riff. It was strictly a dedication to Jimmy, and then we wrote the song on top of it. So I thought that was pretty cool. So the riff was inspired by Hendrix. Exactly. After seeing him in concert. Yeah. That's interesting. And maybe for the first time, because it sounded like Jack Bruce wasn't that interested in, in Hendrix up until that point. Yeah, well, Hendrix was a guy that came on the scene, and he freaked out everybody, yeah. including the Beatles, including Clapton, um, including Jeff Beck. They were all going way out of their way to see this guy because they all thought that they were God. And in all, for all intents and purposes, they were. But yep. here came this guy who was effectively an alien from another <laughs> universe <laughs> right. that came and ruled all of them, and he floored them. Yeah, yeah. And it, it actually sent Clapton into a bit of a depression for a certain amount of time, as I recall. Hmm. Well, he certainly admired his talent, no yeah. doubt about it. Yeah, no doubt. Really quick on that note, if I can interject something on Hendrix. Hendrix has an album called Live at Winterland, and this was, I think, put out in 68. And go look for that album and look for Hendrix's cover of Sunshine of Your Love. I mean, you mentioned that the song, the song was inspired by Hendrix. Hendrix was inspired by the song. And this was, um, oh, I, mean, I think this was in 70, because it, it was just after Cream had broken up. And Hendrix intros the song, and he says, hey, there's word that these guys just broke up. They're one of the heaviest bands in the world. I'm sad to see them go. I'm not trying to do this to compete with them, to, but to pay homage to them. And he takes that opening riff for Sunshine of Your Love and the whole song, and the whole thing is an instrumental. He doesn't sing it. Mm -hmm. So it's just Hendrix, his trio, vamping on Sunshine of Your Love, and he turns that song inside out, upside down, and just floors you wow. with what he does with it. His interpretation of that song is amazing because the riff is really simple and it's a little three-chord song generally. Mm -hmm. Actually, in the chorus, there's a couple more so chords, but it's um, he takes it and takes a simple song and makes it amazingly intricate, amazingly complex, and just does something only Hendrix could do with it. So anyway, go check it out. It's worth listening Very to cool. if you like yeah, the song. Definitely, definitely. Well, one of the things that really makes the song, too, is the drum beat. And here's an interesting story about the genesis of that beat. Uh, Tom Dowd, who was an engineer for the album, and uh, he said when they were that when they were playing the song, it just wasn't working. And so he said that, uh, and this is a quote: "There just wasn't this common ground that they had on so many of the other songs." I said, "Have you ever seen an American western where the Indian beat, the downbeat, is the beat? Why don't you play that one?" 
Ginger went inside and they started to run the song again. When they started playing it that way, all of the parts came together and they were elated. Wow. Engineer tells him how to play. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Of course, Baker says that he was the one who came up with the drum pattern and, and he didn't even get a thank you for it. <laughs> but uh, mm-hmm. So he was a little bit bitter about it, but I guess that's just his prickly <laughs> person anyway, right? Yeah, right, right. For the solo, Clapton played the opening lines from the pop standard Blue Moon, qu- creating a contrast between the sun and the moon. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I've Okay, so uh, this was the very first song that I learned on the electric guitar. Mm-hmm. And it was the very first song that I ever tried to learn a guitar solo on. And I remember kind of fiddling with that solo, and I got it as a beginner guitar player would, which was semi-okay at best. But I, So anyway, I've known and I've played that solo my whole entire life, and not until you just said that did I realize that he's actually mimicking the melody to Blue Moon. (laughs) I never knew that. How how I could have that in my head my entire life and not put that two, those two together. That's that's a pretty ingenious little lift that he did. Cool. The lyrics were written by Pete Brown, who was a beat poet, who was a friend with Ginger Baker and Jack Bruce. Uh, he also wrote the lyrics for I Feel Free and White Room, a couple more hmm. great cream songs. Uh, Eric Clapton and Jack Bruce wrote the music. Most of the lyrics to Sunshine of Your Love were written during an all-night creative session between Bruce and Brown. And Bruce said, I picked up my double bass and played the riff. Pete looked out the window and the sun was coming up. He saw the street lamps winking out against the sky and spoke what he saw. It's getting near dawn and lights close their tired eyes. Hmm. Which becomes the opening lines, the opening stanza for the song. Clapton later wrote the song's refrain, which also yielded the song's title. Well, I don't have a whole lot of information about what the meaning of the song is. And maybe, you know, I I like to find a good nugget about what the song means. And maybe it's just as plain as the lyrics that I've been waiting so long to be with you and in the sunshine of your love, which I think is just a beautiful metaphor for being in the presence of someone that you love in the sunshine of your love. Very 60-ish, yeah. psychedelic free love kind of stuff. Exactly. Too. Yeah, perfect for the summer of love. Not all lyrics have to be like some deep, crazy meaning. Sometimes it's just <laughs> cool to write poetic yeah. words that say what they want to say. And, and when, you, when you think about it in the context, you know, these guys have been up all night trying to write music. Right. And, you know, with the opening line, as the street lights are going on, the sun's coming up and... And one thing you think about after you've been working for a long time is can't wait to be home with my spouse. Right. Could be could be it. Of course, there's people on the Internet who will speculate about what things mean. Um, given the psychedelic era, uh, one person's theory is that, that the, the song is all about an acid trip with an acid called Orange Sunshine. So <laughs> <laughs> works. Of course, every song was about drugs from the 60s, yeah. right? <laughs> Uh, there's another person who speculates that it's all about death. Uh, when you've got the, the the line, the light shining through on you is an allusion to going through the tunnel of light and then having the light shining on the, the person at the other end of the tunnel of death, joining your loved one after death. That was the theory. Hmm. A lot of reading into that. Yeah. I, think. Yeah. <laughs> I like Dave's point. You know, Sometimes it just it sounds like there's a lot of metaphors to light. And then you got the moon. Yeah, I love that. I and that's the coolest thing I've heard is you know let's contrast it with moonlight and sunlight and it's light, light motif. There's 
Yeah, that doesn't have to be any more complicated than that. Tunnels or no, it's yep. light. The people that are interpreting that are on drugs themselves. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa, he's talking about my death. <laughs> no, actually, he's just writing some nice lyrics in a room. That's, right. That's all he's doing. <laughs> well, Cream played this at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame on January 12th, 1993, when they reunited for their induction. And the band has played it together three times since the breakup. The first was at Clapton's wedding in 1979. The second was when they were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 93. And the third was in 2005 when they reunited to play four shows. And that was in England at the, uh, what's the name of the theater? Is that the O2? Or no, no, it was at the Royal Albert Hall. That's it, the Royal, Royal Albert Hall, yeah. They're, they're showing that concert on Palladia. And it is a great concert. Is it because Clapton, I recall, was disappointed with how that turned out musically? I thought he had said some things that it was uh, it kind of fell flat for him. But I mean, who hmm. knows? Clapton's standards are far beyond the rest of the world, right. probably. Right. So maybe we all think it's great and he thinks it's crap. But yeah, yeah, interesting. But I, I really liked it. You know, I oh, yeah. obviously wasn't going to concerts in the late '60s, but mm-hmm. would have loved to be there. You know, at the prime of that. But to see them performing some of those great standards on TV was pretty incredible. Yeah, Clapton, uh, amongst all of the kind of original rockers, I guess you could say the Stones still got it, and those guys are still touring as grandpas and stuff, but <laughs> um, Clapton's been able to retain his guitar chops, his vocals, and if not if not just retain them, but improve them throughout the years. And I haven't seen him play live recently, but uh, man, for spanning a career that's been, what, like four decades plus, more, five decades? Yep. Um He's just continued a musical ascent in a lot of ways. Sixth decade. If you Is count it? the started in the 60s, yeah. still playing. Yeah, you're right. That's incredible. Yeah. And he's one of the few that still remains, not just active musically, but just remains, period. And it's it's very sad. I saw on uh, on YouTube, he did a really nice tribute to B.B. King when he passed away and talked to him about oh, how B.B. King influenced him. And I mean, think about Clapton. He's played with everybody. And, and he's just... But um, it's sad that we're losing. We talked about Benny King, you know, Stand By Me just passed away and, you know, Jack Bruce and, and, and that generation. I mean, they're they're not going to be around much longer. And so let's enjoy Clapton while we can. Yeah. Yeah. One thing that I admire about Clapton is that he's a, a perfectionist. You know, he, he likes for things to be done right. And and uh, I, I read in a book that one of that the day that he decided to break up cream was the day that they got a review that said, you know, and they, and they thought they were the greatest thing ever. And he gets this review that he reads in the paper that says that they just sounded flat and awful. And he says, mm. yeah, he's probably right. I'm done. And he moves on to the next thing. Yeah. And then he goes to form Blind Faith Yeah. with Steve Winwood, you know. <laughs> and then Derek and the Dominoes. Yes. And, you know, but totally. And, and he, he wasn't afraid to shift gears. Yep. You know, he starts out playing the classic blues and then he moves into the psychedelic music mm. and then he moves into playing with Blind Faith and... And uh, and then and then he goes back to you know more recently to the to the old blues numbers again, mm-hmm. not afraid to mix it up and master every genre. I well, I hugely admire him. Well, just something to piggyback off what you said, Brent. Um, you know, I was this is an interesting stat or a couple a set of stats, and I'm kind of a data head in some regards. You think about all of the classic foundational rock guys and blues guys and the fact that our lives and our lifetimes intersected with theirs, even the Beatles, and they you know, kind of broke up before I kind of discovered music. But um, the fact that we grew up and we live in an era with Paul McCartney in it and we live in an era with Eric Clapton in it, 
That is historically a blessing, and it's something that people, I think, in future generations are going to say, man, can you believe my Grandpa Dave or my Grandpa Brent grew up with you know, being able to go see Eric Clapton? Because they're going to be talked about, and Jimmy Page and all these guys, they're going to be talked about Hundreds for of generations years. of time. Oh, so yeah. Yeah. here's some data points that are interesting. You look at Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs of All Time, and what they did is they broke those out by the decade in which each of those 500 songs came out. Hmm. Interesting. So what decade do you guys think had the largest percentage of those songs in it? 60s or 70s. What, what, what was the first decade? 60s? So the first decade was the 40s, actually. The earliest oh, one wow. was the 40s, interestingly. Hmm. I would say the 60s. I would guess the 60s. The 60s? So here's what it is in order from the 40s. I'd go from 65 to 75. If yeah. I could break up the decades. Yeah. Did they do it that way or <laughs> just right. the 60s, no. 70s, 80s, 90s? So, yeah. They, well, they did it by just the decades, the 40s, 50s, 60s, okay. 70s, 80s, 90s. So there was one song in the 1940s that was 0.2%. There were 72 songs in the 1950s that was 14.4%. In the 1960s, there were 204 songs, wow. which is 40.8%. Wow. Yeah. Right? So you were right, Brent. And then, Treg, you were also right. In the 1970s, it was 141 songs, 28.2%. 1980s, 57 songs for 11.4%. 1990s, 22 songs for 4.4%. And finally, in the 2000s, three songs wow. for 0.6%. <laughs> so here's the thing. The question is, are we all a bunch of like has-beens that are living in the past and we're old fuddy-duddies? Or was the great music really just produced in a 20-year time frame, not specifically then, but the bulk of the great music and history and rock history was produced in a 20-year time frame. And I think it kind of is. And I think future generations will validate that because they keep, they, um, Rolling Stone actually updates this. And I don't know who, and that's, this isn't like the definitive list, but it's Rolling Stone's opinion. They update this as the decades move along and you're still seeing this huge bell curve that just has the 60s and 70s there. And so the Claptons and the Pages and all these great phenomenal people, we're lucky to touch lives with them. My theory is there was so much social upheaval during that time. Yep. You know, from the from the early 60s through the 70s, that uh, that created so much turmoil, so much anxiety, uh, so much emotion in people that mm -hmm. that was expressed in the music. In music. That's my theory. And it's wrong. My theory, <laughs> my theory is you look at those great artists in the 60s and they really were very adept at soaking up the influences. You know, you know, again, I'm a Beatles guy, but the Beatles were very influenced by everybody from Buddy Holly to Little Richard to Carl Perkins to, you know, John Lennon worshipped Elvis. They assimilated their styles into their own and made it their own. I think something we're missing today is a lot of the artists – really haven't done their homework. They don't study their ancestors and what made them great. And there are there are many that do, and I'm not saying there aren't, but I, I think that it seems there's like a lot of soul missing in music today. We we talked earlier about um, you know, the the voice and and, and uh, American Idol and, and those are great maybe technical singers, but they don't really feel that gut wrenching pain. And you look at some of these great artists where they've suffered, they've hurt, and you've got to live that life experience and translate that. The Janis Joplins, you know, that pain. And I don't see that. And so I think the musicians of today really aren't doing their homework and studying up like the Beatles, the Stones, the Kinks, the Who, Led Zeppelin, you know, a lot of these bands that really 
they, they took their influences and took those styles and made it their own, put their own personal stamp on it. Yeah, there was a um, a guitar guy that I played with years ago, and he used to say, "It's like Dave, you gotta have your heart broken before you can sing right." <laughs> and really, that's yep. a lot of what it is. I mean, Salvador Dali said this about art. He said it's all born of conflict, and so the pain, the conflict. I mean, you guys are saying similar things in some regards. You know, all the up, the social upheaval in the '60s and the '70s, it all bears this fruit that is born of emotion and pain and suffering and that's what gives rise to all this great music and we who sit in the lap of luxury it's, it's yeah. uh, comparatively it's tough to come out of there i also think back in the 60s and 70s everything was just so new i mean i was i was doing a little bit of a read-up on uh, multi-track recording uh, the four tr four track recording didn't even start until the mid 60s the early beatles albums were some of the first to be done on four track recorders i mean the technology didn't exist even the electric guitar coming on as a, a viable legitimate mainstream instrument all and then you had elvis come in and the beatles come it was all just this burst of new energy on the scene and now it's become commonplace but you bring up a good point those early artists too they weren't slaves to the technology they didn't have auto-tune and they didn't have right. all that they had to get by on their music talent and if yep. you weren't good musically you would get kicked to the curb because you didn't have the artistry and today i think the technology can hide a lot of mistakes kind of can cover up a lot it of wrinkles does. and and those artists back then i mean like, look at clapton i mean clapton assimilated blues and rockabilly and and everything i mean he's everywhere because he was a student of music he was a history guy and they call him slow hand but he can play some fast stuff that just blows you away i mean i listen to clapton and and you just feel at ease knowing that whatever he does if it's improvised if it's a jam He's just going to make it perfect, and you just feel comfortable. Like some some musicians you watch, and you, oh my gosh, where are they going to go? What are they going to do? Clapton is perfect, note for note, perfect every time, and you just feel that ease. And it's because I think he's he's simulated all of these styles, and he could he could just reproduce whatever he has to, depending on I don't care if it's classical music to 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 rockabilly. I'm going to coin a phrase, and you heard it here for, first. You know what today's music is? It's like musical Botox. <laughs> I'm going to copyright it. But that's what it is. You mentioned it covers up a ton of wrinkles. Yeah. I like the wrinkles. I want Absolutely. the raw imperfections. I want to know what's really going on inside of someone's head. And I want them to translate that to me through music, through their guitar, through the drums, through the bass, through their vocals. And if there's a computer in between that making everything perfect, it just loses everything for me almost. And isn't it interesting now we've gone full cycle that we're now back to – albums you know because of of that imperfections and the warmth you know we went through the digital cd uh, data tapes you know where it was so crisp and clean but it separated everything you didn't have that melting together of the sound and the mm -hmm. styles and now we're getting back to people want the wax and you know they want that the album uh feel and the audio files they really want that true experience and yep. you know they want the pop and hiss because that's music that's authentic amen good stuff well, we really could use another world war. <laughs> no, thank you. And, and global economic crisis in order to bring about some more good music. <laughs> no, thank It'll you. be worth it. <laughs> you can listen to a clip from the song on iTunes by clicking on the album link on the Rocktail Hour website. Please email us at dudes at rocktailhour.com. If you think we got it all wrong, if you have an interesting rock tale of your own, or if you have a recommendation of a song that would be a good subject for Rocktail Hour. If you think we're just lame, 
please keep that to yourself. Please follow us on Facebook and Twitter and rate us on iTunes. Until the next Rocktail Hour, rock on. <laughs>